Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf after becoming a high priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. Thanks, Cooper. You should know I was running up behind you to make sure the microphone was low enough, but you nailed it. Well, if you're between the ages of four to the second grade, you're excused to kids club. I think most of them already ran off on me. Most people have at least some personal familiarity with the word depression. It's either something you've experienced or something someone close to you has experienced. Now, it's important to point out that the word depression can have two different ways of discussing it. It has both a subjective and an objective meaning. Let me explain that. For some, it can mean that my team lost a big game. I feel depressed. For some, it can be that the test I've been studying for, the project I've been working so hard on, didn't turn out the way I wanted it to, so I feel depressed. It can even be something like, our last stay-at-home kid is going to school this year, I feel down, I might even feel depressed. For some, it can be a short season of sadness or even introversion that could only be summarized as well depression. Those are all examples of depression used subjectively. It isn't wrong. In fact, it's quite real. It's absolutely valid. We will all go through peaks and valleys brought on by all kinds of different things. And even if the valley isn't that deep or all that meaningful, we still feel it. We really feel it and the pain is real. I'm not at all attempting to take anything away from your experience in depression by calling that subjective. Actually, I'm trying to validate it. But there's also an objective meaning of the word depression, which points to a more clinical type of depression. It's something that can range from a mild temporary episode of sadness to things that can go much more severe even to long-term persistent conditions that never, ever, ever seem to go away. That is also called depression. And it is these kinds of clinical depression that can have all kinds of symptoms and signs and that go far beyond the normal peaks and valleys of life. And it is well worth noting that in those seasons, it is well worth your time to seek professional help. Make no mistake about it. There's nothing wrong with seeking professional help from a counselor. Mental health professionals are a common grace and a good gift from our Heavenly Father. In fact, on four different occasions have I sat down with one, and no doubt I'll do it at least a couple of dozen more times. When I opted to include the word depression in the title of this sermon, anchored in depression, I actually have both meanings of the word depression in mind. For whatever your experience with depression has looked like, I firmly believe that Psalm 88 can speak to it. So it speaks to the reality 
of being anchored, even in something like depression. If you're new with us, we're in a series called My Anchor Holds. Considering this truth that Cooper spoke over us, that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. It is a reminder to us that we are anchored in any and in every storm. I laughed at the number of times this verse showed up in social media this week. Beth Moore tweeted it, reminding people that we are forever tethered to our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that we constantly need. So if you've been paying attention this summer, you will have noticed we've really tried to direct us to this idea, right? We've been repeating a verse every week in our sermons. We've been using the song Cornerstone or the song Christ the Solid Rock in every single service, trying to help us garner this idea to really press it into us because we need to bolster our theology of suffering. To know and to understand that God the Father has a purpose in all things, including our suffering. Because it is in our trials, in our challenges, and in our difficulties, sometimes that we have the greatest ability to point to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It is in those times when we have nothing left to stand on, when we can say that Jesus is enough. Even when the waves are high, even when we are at rock bottom, to know that we are forever anchored in Jesus Christ and that we're anchored in the truth of his word. This morning, as we continue in our series, we're stepping into Psalm 88. So you might start turning there in your Bibles now. But as you get there, there's some things you need to know. First, Psalm 88 is a psalm of lament. That means it's sad. And in fact, it's a psalm of extreme lament. Scottish Old Testament scholar Ario White, by the way, he gets three initials. That's awesome. Called it the darkest corner of the Psalter. American Old Testament scholar Alan Ross called it the saddest psalm in the entire book. So why are we spending time here? Why are we opening up Psalm 88? Because we need to be reminded for our own souls and to offer comfort to those who we can comfort through the comfort God has given us. That even on the darkest of nights, even when we are drowning or have already drowned, that we need to be real about this. We need to own the fact that sometimes we can feel this way, and this psalm will comfort us in this place, and actually, this psalm can actually validate our experience. I remember in 2007... A pastor came to Dallas Seminary, I was a seminary student there at the time, and gave a message in the chapel, basically saying that people struggling with depression needed to trust Jesus more and have more quiet times. He was actually pretty well known to say that if you're on an antidepressant, 
uh, you're basically giving your life over to Satan. It couldn't be further from the truth. To help illustrate that, I, it is worth noting that the same guy came back five years later. And when he came back, and he's a regular Dallas Seminary speaker, he actually repented for giving that message. Because five years later, he woke up one morning and couldn't get out of bed for three months. God walked him through exactly what he'd preached against. I think God did it purposefully to show him so that he could be an encouragement. And after he tasted the reality of depression, his attitude on the whole thing changed. And I think Psalm 88 will validate that reality. So let's turn there, Psalm 88. It starts with a tag at the beginning, a song, a reminder that these psalms were sung, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath, Linioth, a mesquil of Heman, the Ezraite. First, we need to get this out of the way if you're staring at your Bible. It's Heman and not He-Man. If you're of my generation, you might want to think that this is a cartoon character, He-Man, writing about his struggles with Skeletor, but it isn't. This is Heman. He's a Ezraite, and in fact, the scriptures refer to him several times. He's referred to as one of the wisest men, a counselor of David and Saul, but who also happened to be a singer. He's referred to in 1 Kings 4, 1 Chronicles 15, 16, and 25. And Heman is the author of this psalm. And this is what he writes. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. This is his first line, his first six words. O Lord, God of my salvation. Heman knows who God is. And... Heman knows who God has declared himself to be. That is his hope. That is his anchor. That is what he is going to cling to, this very idea that he can call to God, the God of his salvation, that he can cry out to this God constantly. That is his hope. It's not a situation. It's not a situational shift. It's not a situational change. It's in God that he places his hope. It's in these six words that Heman clings to. Because it's in those six words that is his only hope. We'll find that the rest of this psalm is hopeless. It doesn't point to anything of merit or value. It doesn't turn a corner. This is one of a handful of psalms that never corrects, that never comes around. Heman is constantly seeking after God. He's constantly praying, and yet his condition does not change. Friends, when you pray to God and he feels distant, when you pray to God and he even feels silent, does that change who God is? Please say no. Does that change what he has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ? No. Because in this psalm, we need to see, we need to be reminded, we need to be fortified in, we need to be bolstered in, we need to be built up. 
in the reality that we will all go through dry seasons, even incredibly dry seasons that could and can go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And it does not change the character of God or his faithfulness. See, we can quickly buy into this idea. If I've prayed about it more than once and God hasn't responded, it's him that's the problem. We can buy into this ideology and theology that God is like a spiritual ATM that I stick my card in and I put my PIN number and I put in what I want. I'd like $150 in cash. (laughs) And it says no. For many reasons, including money doesn't come out in odd denominations. God is not like that. He doesn't respond to us in that manner. And we can decide of our own merit that he can and he should. And that's a false and a bad theology. In fact, I would tell you, Psalm 88 is an incredible apologetic against health and wealth, prosperity theology. Because this psalm is going to lead you in the depths of depravity with no hope of return. And that's an experience that some people will go through. That a prosperity theologian or a health and wealth guy cannot resolve this psalm. It testifies to us that some of us will be called to go through an experience like this. And our hope needs to be in God. In who he is and in who he has declared himself to be and not our experience and not our feelings. These passages help to define and refine and bolster our theology of suffering. Verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has had no strength, like one who set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Heman is expressing that he is troubled. His heart hurts. He feels alone. He might as well be dead. This is his experience. As an 18-year-old college freshman, I've shared this story in a couple of different ways. My mom passed away. One easily the most challenging experience I've had as a human. And I remember one morning really talking to God about this because it seemed unfair to me. Because the more my mom got sick, the more I realized that something significant was going on. And so for the last week of my mom's life, I had a group of my peers in my college dorm room praying every night. And after six nights of praying, I started to be like, Lord, man, we're praying fervently about this. Like we're, we've come together as a body and we, we are all agreeing about this. And clearly you're going to heal my mom. And you know what didn't happen? And you know, I was totally crushed by that. And I remember after she passed away, coming back to college and sitting one day in this little spot on campus, there were trees, and I was just praying about this, like, Lord, I don't understand how this could happen. And by context, you need to appreciate that I was sitting in this hammock, praying to the Lord, like, Lord, man, could my life get any worse when the hammock breaks? 
this is not a hyperbolic story. I slam on the ground. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, this is not funny to me. Like, God, I prayed you didn't respond, and now I'm laying on the ground and my head hurts. Like, we need to understand that life hurts, and we will feel alone. We might even feel like we'd be better off dead. That's what Hemond's expressing to hear. That's what I felt laying on the ground under these trees. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. Salah. Now listen to Heman for a second, because his tone is starting to shift. Because now, not only is he feeling alone, not only is he feeling like he's in the depths of a pit, like he's in a really dark place, but now Heman is starting to blame God for his position. He started to really feel. And in his feelings, he started to feel like God has put him there. Friends, can I just remind you that you weren't meant to follow your feels? You weren't intended to be led by your emotions. You were meant to follow Jesus. Because your feels aren't that trustworthy. Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us, by the way, it is the Lord God speaking in Jeremiah 17.9 when he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's God speaking, saying, your heart will lie to you. Your feelings are not trustworthy. Which is to say that if you are in a hard spot even now, I'm not trying to change how you feel. I'm trying to remind you that your feelings, your feels, aren't the best sense of what is true. And, way more importantly, to remind you that they are certainly not the truth. For it is in these situations that we most certainly need to cling to. Not what we feel, but what is true. And that's what we see him in doing. He continues to sink. He continues on his way down, verse 8, being led by his feelings. You have caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do you, do the departed rise up to praise you? Salah. Do you see how his emotions are the waves that are rocking against him? He continues to blame God for his situation and to feel sorry for himself. He's totally overwhelmed. But even in that, he's still tethered to the truth. Verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord. 
the picture you see is that Heman is a wreck and he's sinking fast and he's trying to hold on and he's tethered. That's why this is a picture of depression to me. Because his, his situation is not resolving. It's not changing how he feels. And yet there is still a rock-solid truth in the midst of his storm. There's still a rock-solid truth in the midst of his ocean at the bottom that he's clinging to. Verse 11. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? He's starting actually to even challenge God. Are you in these places? Can you redeem these things? Now, theologically, absolutely, we would say yes. Correct? God can and will redeem absolutely anyone he desires, regardless of their situation. And in fact, if you're with us this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to know that a church is a gathering of believers that are here to be built up as the body of Christ, to be built up in their belief in Jesus Christ. So I'm not just proclaiming truths that are true for everyone. I'm proclaiming truths that are true for believers in Jesus Christ. And if this is not where you are and you feel hopeless and you've been pushed around and battered by the waves, can I offer you the only solid anchor? And that is Jesus Christ. For if you do not believe in him, can I subject you to this reality? That this morning you're surrounded by people who have gathered not to proclaim their sufficiency. They're not doing it on their own. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. They'd be in a donut store. They'd be at a lake somewhere. They'd be on vacation somewhere. And those things aren't bad in of themselves. But believers in Jesus Christ gather together to say, I cannot do it on my own. It is only through Jesus Christ that I can stand. That's why we gather. And that's who you're surrounded by. A group of people who can testify to you if you ask them to, hey, why are you here? And you should get stories back like, well, you know, I tried trusting this and I tried trusting this and I tried finding my identity in these things and man, was it worthless. Man, was it hopeless. But what I found in Jesus Christ has changed everything. And friends, this psalm will testify to you that being a believer in Jesus Christ does not promise you a life of ease or a life of comfort. No, actually, it'll promise you a lot of other things that you won't enjoy much, but will be used for his glory, and we'll get there. Let's finish the psalm. Verse 13, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Heman 
is as low as you can get. And the psalm is over. The psalm doesn't suggest that he gets resolved. The psalm seems to suggest that he's been here for a really, 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 really long time and he's getting no resolution. There's no uptick. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. We don't know anything else about Hemen's life or if any of this ever resolves. And you know what? God didn't want us to know. For he has given us absolutely everything we need in his word in order to follow him and to know him. And not as rote servants, but as his beloved children, purchased with the blood of his son. So the question that we have to contend with in Psalm 88, the question we have to consider this morning is this. Is God still God? Is God still faithful? Is God still trustworthy when I don't feel like he is? Or when I don't feel like he's responding to me? You could put it a different way. Is God still God? Is he still faithful? Is he still trustworthy when he's not removing from me some suffering I'm walking in or a depression I'm going through? Is God still God? Isn't that the question? Can God allow me to walk through this for a long season and it be okay? Because the book of Job seems to allow for a great deal of suffering. If you're not familiar, I'd suggest it. Psalm 88 seems to speak to a man who is at the very, very, very bottom and doesn't recover. It took Job years to recover. We don't know that Heman did. So friends, let's consider what the New Testament says. I will point us to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12. Listen to what he writes. You can turn there as we start to turn a corner. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. There are two things that we need to take from these two verses. First, look at verse 7. So to keep me from being conceited, consider for a moment what Paul is writing. God purposefully gave him something to cause him to suffer. God purposely gave Paul something to cause him to suffer because God had something greater for Paul than comfort. We need to at least appreciate at some level that some of us, if not most of us, suffer with the idol of comfort. That's why we don't like passages like this. We want to believe in a God, a prosperity God that only wants to bless us, that wants us to have, you know, 900 uh, thread cotton sheets. 
and have great vacations all the time and live in yachts and drive Mercedes. That's the God we want to believe and hope in. And yet here we find God willing to give us something, willing to give Paul something that would cause him to suffer, that would cause a messenger of Satan to harass him continuously. Because some, God had something for him greater than comfort. God had a purpose for Paul. And God, the creator of all things, saw, he perceived that Paul's suffering in this way would be beneficial for Paul. And it'd be beneficial for the plans that God has for him. Friends, this psalm causes us to be challenged by the reality that God might have something bigger for us than our comfort. He might call us to suffer. And I can't predict what that will look like. For some of us, that might be cancer. For some of us, that might be unemployment. For some of us, that could be strained relationships in all kinds of ways. I cannot begin to predict what that could look like in your life. But God has set a pattern in the life of Paul that he's willing to call his servants to suffer for his glory because it's his glory that are at stake and we are tools used in his hand for his glory. I would remind you of the words of Jesus in John 15, a passage we all love. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. We're all good so far. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. We're okay with that. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Listen carefully to Jesus. For there are only two options. To be cut and carried off and burned. That's what verse 6 would tell you. Or you can be pruned. Now, I've never been a plant. My guess is to be pruned as a bush is to suffer. It's to have part of you cut off, to have it paired off, to have your comfort removed so that you can be healthier. Now, I can't imagine any plant in my garden is excited about this. I've never been thanked by any plant I own. And yet, I can tell you with some experience that pruning a bush is extraordinarily healthy for it. It can help it to grow and prosper. It can help it bear more fruit, more flowers, whatever. The illustration that God is pointing to here in John through the words of Jesus is, I will cause you to suffer. And it doesn't seem to be an optional passage. Some burn, some will be pruned so that you can bear more fruit, so that you can be healthier. The second thing we need to take away from verses 7 and 8 of 2 Corinthians 12 is this. Look back at verse 8. Paul says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Friends, if you're praying fervently about something, and your prayer is not being answered, 
It isn't because God doesn't hear you. And it isn't because God doesn't care. I could quote Garth Brooks, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. But if you're not a country music fan, you wouldn't appreciate it. I would affirm to you that God heard Heman. And that God loved Heman deeply. And God had a great plan for Heman's life. And God wanted to bless Heman far more than he ever understood. And God wanted greater things than Heman ever wanted for himself. And God heard Paul, and God loved Paul deeply, and God wanted to bless Paul and give him things that he could not fathom. And God hears you, and he loves you deeply, and he has a great plan for your life that you cannot see the end of. You don't know all that he has in store, but I promise you, it will be far better than your plan for yourself, and it will involve suffering. Because it involves suffering for Paul. Because it involves suffering for him. And because it involves suffering for Jesus. I could go on and on and on and on. We are promised that we will suffer. And that God has a purpose in allowing us to suffer. So we need to be bolstered by how Paul finishes 2 Corinthians 12 in this brief section. Because what he says is significant. What he says is life-changing. Because this is what he writes. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what Jesus says to Paul. Therefore, this is Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For I am weak, then I am strong. What Paul writes is that the grace of Jesus Christ became more and more and more and more to him. The power of Jesus Christ became more and more and more and more to him when he started to realize how weak he was. This thorn, this suffering that was caused in his life allowed him to recognize his insufficiency so that the sufficiency of Jesus Christ could become plain. Therefore, Paul writes... I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? Because it testifies to the sufficiency of Christ. So that, in verse 10, for the sake of Christ, I'm content with weakness. For the sake of Christ. Friends, we do not live as believers in Jesus Christ for the sake of our own glory. We live for the sake of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is because of Jesus Christ that we would be willing to suffer. We'd be willing to allow his sufficiency to be on display in our lives. It's because of Jesus Christ that we could be content with the fact that we are weak. Now, this is the exact opposite message that the world would give you. The world would tell you to be strong. The world would tell you to never let your weaknesses show. Be as much as you could be. But that's not 
our faith. Many people don't recognize that probably the, one of the greatest modern preachers, Charles Spurgeon, struggled with depression. It rode him his whole life. Such that Charles Spurgeon wrote that he learned to kiss the waves. It's a quote I actually, I learned a lot about Spurgeon by reading this book. I'll reference it again here in a minute. Spurgeon talked about the fact that he felt like a rock on a cliff on a beach. That the waves just smacked over and over and over again in a never-ceasing fashion. And he started to learn and to appreciate that those waves were forming and shaping him. And it was God's grace. So he learned to appreciate the suffering God brought into his life. This is a book a friend of mine, Dave Furman, a guy I went to seminary with, wrote about his own suffering. Dave Pastor lives in the Middle East, plants a church there, and about a year into it, recognizes he has a debilitating disease where he can no longer lift more than like a pound. Well, this is not very helpful when you're a pastor and you can't lift your own Bible. It's not helpful when you're a pastor and you can't hold an iPad. It's not helpful when you're a dad and you can't carry your kids. In fact, he's got a video that goes along with this that shows one of his daughters helping him get dressed every morning. And that's the pattern of their family because God's called him to suffer. If you're interested in reading this book, I'll leave it here. Anyone is welcome to take it. It is a book on suffering and accepting the sufferings that God has for us. I've got more copies if it disappears and you want one. Christ is our anchor. Christ is our anchor. He's the only thing we can tether ourselves to that will hold. It's not going to be the world. It's not going to be the church. So many stories coming out about the church. We could point to River City. We could point to Willow Creek in Chicago. We could point to the Catholic Church in Pennsylvania. We cannot tether ourselves to people. We cannot tether ourselves to experience. We cannot tether ourselves to our feelings. We cannot tether ourselves to our emotions. Jesus Christ is the only sufficient thing that we can tether ourselves to. It's the only thing that will tether us to our Heavenly Father. And it's the only thing that will grant us the grace that will be sufficient in our weakness. For when we are weak when we're unable to hold ourselves together, when we're falling apart, when we have zero ability to go forward, when we cannot get out of bed, we cannot even move. It is in that moment that the truth, not of our feelings, not of our emotions, not of our experiences, but the truth of Jesus Christ needs to be our anchor. We need to cling to the truest true we know. That it's in his sufficiency, his power, and his faithfulness that we can carry on. And that may not change our situation. It may not change our scenario. It may may not make your day any brighter. But oh, that we might see it. Because it's there. And then we, like Haman, could proclaim, Oh Lord, God of my salvation that we could proclaim that in faith, even in our suffering. For we will be called to suffer for Christ's sake and to put his sufficiency 
on display. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, as we've worked through this book of Psalms, considering that you are a sure and steadfast anchor, we have seen so many different situations and scenarios, different storms that you can hold us through. Father, even in depression, whether it is a subjective or an objective one, whether it is diagnosed by a professional or just something we feel, Father, would you be true in it? Would you allow us to cling to the one thing that is true, and that's you love us, and that you sent your son to die on a cross for us? And whether we feel it or not, we have a great hope in you. Could you just let us cling to that? Father, for we do not know how long we will suffer. We do not know what you have for us today, what you have for us tomorrow, or the day after that. Father, we do know that we have a great hope in Jesus Christ. And we know that you are faithful. And we know that you're coming back to take us home. So remind us of that sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. That regardless of the wave, regardless of the pain, regardless of the hurt, that we're tethered to you. Jesus, you're our only hope. In your name we pray. Amen.